there is a way to dial down the chaos. Um, systems do that. That's why there's HR teams and corporations. That's why people have policies. That's why we have laws. Because ultimately, these are ways to design behaviors to make them expected so that we are not making decision fatigue problems. Do you, can you imagine if we did not know if cars would stop at a stop sign? We would all have to make the decision every single time to assess a car. Does that car look like I could wave it down? Does that car look like it'll stop for me? It would be complete and total and utter chaos. So whether it's the law, whether it's designing the behavioral design for your home, getting a system in place is life-changing. That was Eve Rodsky on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know by now that we are partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. And there's a reason why. It's because Praxis really can help you transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based approaches. ACT, DBT, compassion-focused therapy. And we love Praxis so much, especially because our very own Debbie Sorensen is going to be doing a workshop through Praxis. Tell us about it, Debbie. Yes, I'm doing a webinar on acceptance commitment therapy for burnout. This is for therapists who are working with clients who are burnt out. And of course, as therapists, we are also (laughs) occasionally may experience our own burnout. So hopefully it will be helpful for that too. It starts August 25th and it's on Wednesday afternoons just for a few Wednesdays in a row. Uh, So you can check it out on the Praxis website and learn more. I hope you can join me if you're a therapist. It'd be great to have you there. And for all of the live online courses that Praxis offers, you can go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and get a discount code. I'm here with Diana to introduce today's episode, where we had Eve Rodsky come back for a second interview. And this one is a little bit different than the last one, because Eve actually answered questions from you, our listeners, about her system, Fair Play. So I'm here with Diana, and I'm curious what your thoughts were, Diana, on this one. Well, I love the concept of systems. And one thing that kept on showing up throughout the interview that I I just paused on, and I think that a lot of people don't think about this as such an important part of a system, is having those check-ins, whether they're check-ins with yourself or check-ins with each other and check-ins with your family. And I see that as, at least in our family, the check-ins that, you know, it's not like we're carving out special time. It's like we're checking in at dinner or we're checking in in the morning or we're checking in throughout the day is really the part of the family life where it kind of like brings you back together again and realize that we're all kind of interconnected. We're all a system and how I'm doing influences how you're doing, but also that if one person is taking so much of the load 
it influences the rest of the system and that we need to check in. How busy are we and how is this working? So that was something I really appreciated about about her approach. And they don't always have to be lovey-dovey check-ins like she, like she shared. I don't like yeah. your face. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I feel like in all of my years of psychology and it's going on, you know, over two decades now, time and time again, so often the answer to difficult problems boils down to communication. And that's essentially what a check-in is. And for some reason, it seems to be very difficult for us to do this, but so incredibly important to be able to communicate about this, the family system and how it's going and, and what we're doing and whether it's working and whether we even need to be doing it. You know, one of my favorite things about Eve's system is the very first step to deciding, you know, who's going to take on which responsibilities is going through and deciding if certain responsibilities are even something we value. I've been thinking a lot about that as we're transitioning out of the pandemic. What an exhale I heard from folks when things slowed down, like, oh, gosh, I'm so glad I don't have to do that baby shower or that whatever all the things that we were engaging in pre-pandemic. And also how quickly folks are picking stuff up without having that pause to do sort of the Marie Kondo of their lives. Like, does this bring me joy? Is this connected to my values? Is this what we want as a family? And there's a culture of busyness, I think, in particular, that is so focused on just doing more to keep up with the Joneses as opposed to what works in our family life. And I know for us as a family, we're just really intentional about how much we do and why we do it because I really value downtime. And I see that as an important part of the system. That's the time when we just restore and reconnect and we have space to communicate with each other. I totally agree. And I think that's one of the benefits that has come out of this pandemic time for me personally. And my husband has always been a downtime person. And so it's allowed us to really connect more on that level that when we do a check-in around, is this important to us? What do we want our family system to look like? We're now both more on that page of honestly doing less overall. It's not just about who's doing what, but as a family, doing a little bit less overall. And it feels far less stressful. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other piece I just want to add to it, there's a playfulness to Eve that I really appreciate. There's a humor to her. And mm -hmm. something that I really appreciate about our, our household is that we there's a lot of playfulness in our doing of housework, that it's that it doesn't have to be a chore, that that it can be mm -hmm. um like that it's actually part of our kids learning some really important life skills. And even thinking back to Benji Schoendorf's episode where he talked about doing the laundry and how when you turn the laundry into a choice and not have it be a should, how it changes your whole relationship with the same task, mm -hmm. that I think that that's also what Eve really shifts is the, the mindset around choice and that we're making choices to, to participate in in doing these tasks because it's the benefit of the whole, the benefit of the whole household, that it's not just about, oh, the drudgery of I'm the laundry person, but really in our house, laundry is like a, it's like a fun thing. We turn it into games and, and it's less about shooting and more about this is, this is a team that we all are members of that we're working together in this yeah. household. And that these things matter to us. And if they don't, then maybe they don't need to be done. 
Well, everybody, enjoy this episode with Eve Rodsky. Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I have been so looking forward to this episode. I have Eve Rodsky back for episode number two to talk about Fair Play, which is a book, but also an entire system. We had Eve on back in episode 176. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and listen to it so you can learn all about fair play in the system. Because today we're going to do things a little bit differently because I have listener questions that I'm going to pose to Eve. So Eve, welcome back. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. And I will ask listeners to go back to episode 176 because I think it was one of my, you're one of my favorite interviewers and I was happy to be back. And I think we do lay a, a good foundation, at least the 101 for what, what fair play is before we get into today is like more like a 201. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. And before we get into questions, I want to share a little bit of my experience because as you may remember, Eve, Billy, my husband and I dealt the cards the night before the interview, yes. you know, to like <laughs> get a little bit of practice and hadn't actually really implemented things. And he and I went through a very rough period after the spreadsheet and the whole nine yeah. yards. Yeah. And we had worked for a couple of years to get to a good place and we were in a much better place. But since I read Fair Play and Billy and I dealt the cards, I am telling you guys, this is an absolute game changer. Oh, I'm getting a little choked up actually just I'm thinking cry about it. Too, because I just I wish our our practice could be implemented by everybody, you know, or, or like just by fairy dust. Because thank you, Jill, for saying that. I mean, I feel the same way too, you know. I wish that too. I mean, I can say my marriage has never been stronger. I pretty much never feel anger and resentment, which I was feeling a good part of the time before. I checked in with Billy a couple nights ago. I said, I'm going to be interviewing Eve again. Like, how do you think it's been going? And for his part, he was kind of like, it's good. Like everything's fine. <laughs> like he, I think the two things that are important is he didn't feel like all of a sudden he had a billion more things to do. And now right. he's pissed, which is the fear I think for some women is that the husbands are going to be very upset yeah. that they have this extra work yes. to do. And he didn't like somehow this is a faded switch, right? Like the cards yeah. are some sort of trick. And it's like, yes, you can do card tricks, but card, this is not a card trick. This is a, this is a behavioral design tool that you are uh, supposed to be customizing. And that's Jill, again, why I love your work so much, because I'm talking to people who work in behavioral design or AKA psychotherapists, because you are there to not only change people's mindset, but also to change their behaviors. And so I thank you so much for your work on a daily basis, because you are changing society one person at a time. Well, I hope we can get more people to get on board with Fair Play, because, you know, not only did Billy not feel put upon, but I said, what have you noticed about our relationship? And he completely agreed that things are better than ever. And I don't know that he even tied it necessarily to fair play, but I absolutely did. And when I explained to him, you know, this, I, this fact that like, now that we're sharing in this in a way that truly feels fair, I feel, I want to be affectionate and close to you and not be angry. And anyway, so I am just like the world's biggest okay. fan. Okay. <laughs> and just remember, I think to you, to, to, you know, the other thing I think people will hear us say and say, well, you know, it's. It's, it's it's a practice, 
right? I mean, I think that's the thing I want to just say to Billy, tell him I say hello and I'm giving him a big hug because the practice is, is the key. All right. So are we ready to jump into some of these questions? Absolutely. All right. I'm going to start right out the gate with a kind of hard one, which is what is your advice for the whole CPE process? So conception, planning, and execution, if anyone's cheating and didn't go back and listen to episode 176, when values differ. So in other words, if one partner feels like they absolutely must work all the time because they want to get promotions and they're afraid they're going to get fired and that requires you know, 60 hours a week and the other partner feels differently and wants to prioritize um, maybe more vacations or things like that? I think that's such an important question. And what I've seen in the families that are thriving, and I will include you, Jill and Billy into this as well, is the recognition of what we just said, that this is a practice for having different types of conversations. And so what I mean by that is if you just think you haven't been practicing communication and communication is a means to an end. And then you want to have a conversation about your partner's workload versus what you think is important. It's probably going to be a conversation that doesn't go as well because you're out of practice. It's like me trying to run three miles when I haven't exercised in two years. So what I actually like to do is in those cases is start slow. And so what I mean by that is when you start where you are now, the the beauty of starting to have different conversations on a daily basis about things like maybe garbage or dishes or who's picking up your kids from school or extracurricular sports, things that have to happen sometimes are the way in to these bigger conversations. So I think you and I address this, but I think it's important enough to revisit which is the designing of fair play. And we may not have gone in as deep. So I want to explain what happened to me when I started to design fair play. So I knew that, again, I'm a lawyer. I believe in everything in my world is behavior design. I believe that that's how we design societies, right, is our laws. You can feel free to to cross the street at a stop sign because there's a law requiring a car to stop and not run you over, right? So I look at things as everything is behavioral design for me. So when I thought about behavioral design for fair play, the idea of using the organizational management tools of conception, planning, and execution made a ton of sense because I knew, right, that we don't walk into our boss's office and say, hey, Joe, what should I be doing today? I think I'll just wait here to tell me what to do, right? I know, I could, I know that if I work for you, that that would not fly. <laughs> but but we do that in our homes, right? We we have no rigor for our homes. We don't uh treat them like our most important organization, right? We decide who's taking the dog out uh, right when it's about to take a piss on the rug. We set the table when we're hangry and we're cranky, right? We are doing things on the fly because somehow we equate that to love. And I also think that that happens with our values too, that we think we're having conversations. We know our partners really well, but we actually don't really know them that well. And I know that because I've interviewed a shit ton of partners now. I thought the ownership mindset CPE would be enough because we do it at the workplace. But then I realized the expectation of pay means that people are more willing to do ownership mindset and you don't really need another step. But in the home, 
if you're not building on your values, which is what I do in my mediation practice, then it's going to fail. Fair play becomes just like another list that we've all started and crumbled up and thrown in the garbage. It just becomes a who does what list and that doesn't work. But, but I had to come to that realization because even when Seth said, oh, I got it, I got garbage, I was still his garbage shadow. And so I would walk around the kitchen. I would stare at him to see if he was about to take the garbage out. I opened the door underneath the sink because Seth is really tall. And I was like, this is a great idea. If the sink, if the door under the sink is open, he will hit his knee on it and fall on the ground. And when he's on the ground, he's going to see the garbage liner and it'll remind him to take out the garbage, right? And so I recognized that ownership was not enough. And so the, it's the sitting down, it's that practice of taking a new vow, telling stories around things we've never told our stories about that lead us to these bigger conversations around values. So Seth and I could have a giant conversation now about what we want our son's bar mitzvah to look like, what we care about, what what what, what our retirement want, looks like. But it, it didn't start like that. 10 years ago, we couldn't even have a conversation about who was changing the next diaper because we really were that angry and resentful of each other. And we had lost that touch, that conversation touch. So this is a long answer to say that everything started to change when the step of fair play around buy-in came in. Because after listening to men in hetero cisgender relationships, the number one thing they said to me, besides the fact that they couldn't get anything right in the home, was that they're never invited to the conversation party. Hmm. That the conversations are happening at them. Why didn't you pick up the mustard? Did you log the kid onto Zoom? You know, it was all this feedback in the moment. And it becomes a cascade of what we've heard of as nagging. But ultimately, it, it what it really is, is it means that people shut off and don't even want to listen to each other anymore because they don't, they're afraid of what's coming out of people's mouths. So Seth and I sat down at the beginning of Fair Play and said, let's have a conversation about garbage. Here is my story, Seth. So what happens when you're so divergent over something that has to get done every day? Well, typically, pre-fair play, women were reporting to me that they are just saying, I might as well just do it myself. I'm the one who values it. He doesn't value it. Oh, he doesn't value our bar mitzvah. I'm going to plan it ourselves. He doesn't value vacation. I'm going to take the kids on vacation myself. And then you start diverging over a lifetime. Whereas instead, if you tell each other each other's stories and you start saying, well, what's our minimum standard of care? You know, what is, you know, I borrow that from the law. What is our reasonable person standard? I still want you to own it, but what can we both tolerate? And Seth was able to say to me, look, I can tolerate taking the garbage out once a day. I'll put the liners back in. I'll, I'll do the full CPE of getting the little bins out and the diapers out of the diaper pail. But I really respect that you're not going to stalk me over garbage. And I don't, I really want to own it. And so that's a really, really long answer to that listener's question to say that we have to start telling each other our stories in a way that we've never told each other our stories before, because either A, we assume that they'll know it, or B, we don't think our stories over garbage are important, but they are. Right. And I imagine this, like, I'm afraid that I won't get promoted and I'm not going to get a raise or I might get fired. There may or may not be truth to that, but there's probably a story behind the fear. And if the partner who's saying that can share that story in a vulnerable way, then the other partner might feel a little bit more 
empathy and at less of an impasse. And, and it sounds like it creates a little more room for compromise, basically. Well, I love the way you just paraphrase that with a beautiful way to come to the table because part of fair play as you'll hear in episode 176 is about checking in when when your cognition is is high and your emotion is low and that's the practice of a check-in of investing 10 minutes a night in checking with your partner you will start seeing if you're doing fair play and then all of a sudden you're like shit things feel a little bit unfair you're probably going to say well oh i forgot we stopped checking in that, that practice of communicating is the most important thing in terms of couples who are thriving in the fair play system. Again, this is thousands of data points in now and basically 10 years of beta testers and testers saying the check-in is the key component. And so imagine sitting at your check-in because sometimes, look, you know, I get to our check-in at night and we have our, you know, 10 minutes and I look at Seth's face and I just say, I hate your face. Like I'm checking in to tell you, <laughs> I hate your face. But most of the time, our check-ins are productive about what has to happen the next day, who should handle something. But also in those check-ins, imagine you could say, tell me the fear or the story behind your fear. Tell me the story behind that concern. You say you're worried you're going to get fired. Like, tell me the story behind that concern. Is it a story that you're going to end up hearing about a really difficult boss? Maybe you'll hear the story of immigrant parents and financial security that that's the most important thing. Maybe you'll hear the story that providing for a family was the only way that a man was taught love. You, so you're going to start here. If you can just say, I'd love to hear the story behind that concern. Like, let me thread deeper with you as my friend who's a conversation designer in Silicon Valley calls it. He calls it threading deeper, getting those, those stories out on the table and I'm telling you, Jill, everybody has a story. One of my favorite yeah. things to do now is to say, like, tell me the story about the tooth fairy in your home. And I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask you that, Jill. Did you have a tooth fairy growing up? Yeah, absolutely. And who did it? Do you remember it? Do you remember getting a dollar under the pillow? We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can sign up for a free workshop on learning to set limits with your parenting mojo. So if you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our sponsorship page, you can find access to promo codes there. I totally remember it. And without ever having asked my parents this question, I am 100% certain that my mother was the tooth fairy. <laughs> so, but it would be fun. I'd love for you to ask your parents who was the tooth fairy in your house growing up. And you know, I had a beautiful couple tell me that they had a really long conversation about magical beings. And that's one of the cards in the fair play system. And they got really into this conversation around the tooth fairy. And it became a whole conversation around the standards for everything in their house, where it was a heterosexual couple. And her husband was saying, look, you know, I, the tooth fairy was important to me too, but like, I just wanted to be a dollar into the pillow because if we just have so much fanfare and, you know, sparkles and beautiful cards that the tooth fairy brings, you know, like to me, that means that the magic is going to end so young, right? Like let's build up magic over time. And so maybe it's just a little magical 
to have that dollar under the pillow. Like we don't have to make it this whole Disney style production, right? But having room for that type of conversation is not mm-hmm. something that nor I would say quote unquote is normalized in and this is not just for hetero cisgender, for all couples, mm-hmm. it is not normalized for us to sit there and say, our check-in tonight is about your stories about what the tooth fairy was like for you growing up. And what a great way to to connect too. It's a yeah. really fun way to connect. I will say yeah. that I learned I've learned so much about Seth over um the course of fair play just because so many of the cards like informal education about how did you learn to ride a bike? Who was the one who taught you to ride a bike? Um, you know, just, just, it, it's so interesting how it opens up this whole mm. new lens into your partner's stories. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, let me stay with this kind of theme of a partner who is working a lot, because I think that happens quite a bit. We talked about this a little last time, and it's in the book that if one partner has a more flexible schedule or makes less money or is a stay-at-home parent, they often get saddled with more of the responsibility. And the idea here is like, all of our time is diamonds. My time is as valuable as your time and money shouldn't matter and work schedules shouldn't matter. And so this question came up from at least three different people, which is basically how the hell do we get the rest of society on board? And I'll give you an example where I had a friend who their kids had to quarantine back to back. So it was four straight weeks where they had at least one kid home with no child care. And one parent, it was like easier for her to be home. And for the other one, it was at work won't let me be home. Like I have to go into the office and I have to be there, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five. And it's like out of my control. Right. And I look at that and think societally, If a person shows up to work and gives the impression to their superiors that they don't have a family, they have no children, they can be there Monday through Friday, nine to five, and, you know, nothing will ever change. And it feels like it has to come from the top down if we're going to get some wiggle room. And, you know, another friend was pointing out you know, she's still the only parent that's on the school emails and the texts and the mom groups and the Right. So there's this larger picture issue here where like we might be trying to do fair play individually in our home, but if we don't have the cooperation from organizations and systems, it becomes a little more of an uphill battle. Well, I think it's such a beautiful question. And I think it's why I feel super burned out right now, because um, I'm really trying to capitalize on fair play as a political movement. And I think we did say this in episode 176, but an hour holding our child's hand in the pediatrician's office is just as valuable as an hour in the boardroom, right? That is the culture change that that we're working on. And that's why I think Hello Sunshine partnered with me because they see this as a broader political movement. And part of the political movement is just yesterday, my husband dropped off. He's in charge of transitioning Anna to school. He's on campus. And I still got a call saying, I just want to tell you that Anna is sad. It's like, Seth is there. He is right. there. And I actually called 50, five zero school nurses, doctors, you know, the medical team at schools for the fair play research. And I asked those school nurse teams to tell me why they call the mother. And the answer, and it's how I got to the finding that women's time is infinite, like sand. It was part of my reckoning, my cultural reckoning and understanding of how little we value women's time, because the answer basically was, we don't want to bother him. Oh, God. 
you know, he won't pick up, you know, and it was this somehow this cultural understanding that his time was to be protected like diamonds and ours time was, you know, infinite and not valuable like sand. And so that cultural reckoning is coming. I do want to say that it does feel better, though, when you have a co-conspirator in the home who recognizes the unfairness with you, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being the one blaming you for not picking up from the school and saying, oh, why, you know, did you not pick up like the school called me, right? It, it, I will say starting in the home. So Seth and I as co-conspirators against society, it feels more meaningful than it was before. So what I will say is we cannot change society. Um, you can by, by parenting out loud and by being cultural warriors with me. And Jill, you are changing society because you are working as a cultural warrior to say, my husband is a true partner in the home and you're celebrating it on this podcast. So we are doing it, but we are also going to be doing this by, by taking agency in our own home. And then when people see us do something, that empathy then leads out. So I'll tell you a, a quick story or it's a little bit of a longer story, but it doesn't get, it, I didn't get to write into fair play because it was a couple after the manuscript had to be delivered. And so I don't get to talk about them that much, but Ed and Julie really, to me, answer your question about why I chose to focus on the individual family unit and family structure as the origin of the political movement, as opposed to starting out in the pay equity space or in the paid leave space, which are very, very important. And we're fighting our asses off as a coalition. We have There's a coalition of us called the Care Force that you can find at care-force.org. We're starting to build the political power there. You can join us. Let me, let me jump into it to tell listeners that you have an incredible Instagram account and your LinkedIn too, where you're posting a lot about the care economy. And and I I understand when you say, I think this is why I'm exhausted because you can (laughs) see by your social media that you were like really fighting the power at that systemic and organizational level. So if people are interested in that, Find Eve all over social media and you'll be able to to see what's happening there. Hey, listeners, it's Jill here. As you know, in addition to being a POTC co-host, I'm also an author. And part of being an author is having a platform or an online presence. So if you like the types of interviews I do and you want to hear more from me on ACT, imposterism, anxiety, and more, I'd love it if you would help me out by signing up for my monthly newsletter and by following me on social media. Just go to jillstoddard.com and scroll to the bottom of any page to sign up for the newsletter and click the social media buttons in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for your support. Let me just tell you the story about Ed and Julie. So Ed and Julie, they are a heterosexual couple where Ed said things like, I'm the CEO outside the home and Julie's the CEO of the home. Like Jill wanted to just like throw up, you know, <laughs> or just like throw a rock at him. I just, I, that like that gendered stuff makes me really, really angry. And so Julie knew a fair play because again, this has been a project that I started in 2011. So it isn't my 10 year anniversary coming up. And this was 2018. So, you know, this is already seven years in. It hadn't, the book hadn't launched yet, but I'd written the manuscript. I'd interviewed them as one of the now thousands of couples that have been interviewed for this book. And so Julie comes back to me and says, I really want to try fair play. And I said, great. And she's like, well, I want to do it now. And I'm like, well, Julie, this is not a great time. It's the holidays. It's Christmas. You say that matters to you. Your mom's in hospice. 
it, it sounds like a lot's going on. It's probably not the best. Emotions are running really high. And she said, no, no, no. Like, it's either like fair play or like, I'm leaving my marriage. Mm-hmm. Like it was, she was like, this is, I have no, I have no more time left. And so I said, okay, you know, maybe you'll leave your marriage. And that'll be a data point because I was looking also for couples where it wasn't working. So that's my last chapter of fair play is called the top 13 mistakes couples make and the fair play fix, because I wanted, I like when things fail. That's how you build systems when you mm-hmm. see what's failing. So Julie wants to start fair play. I said, okay, let's start really, really small because you, she had already self-identified as holding every single card for her family. So there was 87 cards in play for her family. She identified and she was holding them all. And now her, she has a wild card where her mother is sick and close to death. So she says she wants to start with homework, that card, the homework card. And the only thing that was coming up because it was getting close to the holidays was her second son, Brody's second grade secret Santa project. So say that five times fast. That's a a tongue twister. Her second son, Brody's second grade secret Santa project, because it had to be done from scratch. Hello, back to culture, not helping us, right? All these Mm -hmm. intensive parenting things where the schools are treating us like we're co-op parents and wacky hair day and all these things that, you know, I don't ascribe to or want to do. We do get shame that other people are are doing them. And, you know, there was a mother in our class who decided that we all had to dress up as Care Bears and like make custom Care Bear costumes. I showed up as a a witch that Halloween and, <laughs> and, and just a, a hat I bought in CVS. And I was like, fuck you, Care Bears. You know, I'm not doing this, you know? um, so, but, so this was, you know, that's part of the pressure, but, but so I said, okay, Julie, I, we want to start with the homework card. You want to hand that to Ed? Well, actually, maybe not because he's not going to do it. The assignment won't get in on time. I don't want Brody's assignment not to be there because then someone else is going to be affected because they'll be the only person who didn't get the secret Santa. So, okay, okay. So instead of you just told me what you want Ed to do, but then you just gave me a hundred reasons why Ed can't do that one task. Yeah. So let's back up. Let's back up. Let's start with your why. Tell me the stories about why the Secret Santa project seems to be so important to you. So this gets back to the stories. She says, okay, the stories I would tell instead of here's where you get the the supplies and this is what you have to do. If I was going to play fair play, the starting with your why is one of the core tenants, the stories we Jill and I were just telling you about listeners. She said, I would tell Ed that it matters to me because... I'm so sick of like the commodities around Christmas. I'm so sick of the fact that my son is so excited about a hundred dollar Nerf gun. Like I would love for my kids to recognize the value in the homemade gift that there's beauty in making something from the heart that like, I would like, I would actually like them to open the cards first instead of just like running to tear open the, the commodity. And so I, I still tear up at that answer. I think it's a beautiful mm-hmm. why. And I, yeah. and I, and I've, I've told the story so many times and I still tear up at it. And then she says, there's a bonus. The bonus is I want to tell Ed that the little girl that Brody drew in the secret Santa hat is a girl that is new to the school. It's December. And still to this day, three months into the school year, she stands like so cute with her backpack in front of the teacher, right when she gets to school. 
she doesn't go play in the handball area. She doesn't do hula hoops with the other girls. Nobody greets her. She stands there alone and she's standing there waiting for the school to walk in because there's nobody for her to play with at recess when her parent drops her off. And so how nice would it be if my popular son Brody made her like a welcome to school? It's hard to be a new student present. So there was a lot wrapped up in this Secret Santa project that 1000% Ed would never have known. There was no context right. for that. This had been something she was holding and she wants to hand it over. So I said, instead of telling Ed all the things he's going to do wrong and all the things he's going to need for this Secret Santa project, can you sit down when emotion is low, cognition is high, just, just with a glass of wine, like later tonight, and just say those two things you just said to me? Just that. Mm. So she does. I get to check in with them. I got to hear Ed's perspective, which was that it was after the holidays, Jill. And he said, I did take it over. Julie did tell me her why. I took over the Secret Santa project. And Eve, I began Googling Secret Santa projects for little girls with my son Brody. And on YouTube, we found that he wanted to do a popsicle stick jewelry box. So that was conception, right? That's the conception yeah. that women yeah. are often ho- holding. They decided together what Brody wanted to do. They had to Google it and research it. So, and he said, and then we wrote down everything we need for the jewelry box. That's the planning. Planning. So they needed a po- colored popsicle sticks. He, uh, Brody wanted glitter. He asked for his dad to go to a place where they could find a knob because they didn't. he didn't want the little girl to need two hands to open her lid for her jewelry. <laughs> He wanted her to be able to open it with one hand, a knob. And so this is Ed telling me all this stuff. And then he says, and then we found this really cool store called Michael's. Um, and you should check it out. Eve. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll check out that store. It sounds awesome. And we went to the store and we picked up all the things. And then, and that's when Julie chimed in and she said, Eve, it was a change. It was life-changing. And, and, and it was super hyperbolic. And I was like, okay, what was life-changing about the experience? She said, well, two things. One, I'd never seen Ed on the floor before. He had actually never been on the floor with our kids before. I'd never seen that. And two, out of the corner of my eye, Eve, I noticed that Ed had glitter on his hands. <laughs> and she's like, yes, glitter is a pain in the ass to get out. But what it truly meant for me, and I said, well, why is that meaningful to you? She said, it was the first time I felt like he was truly in it with me. Mm. And so Ed, right, it all starts with glitter. That's how I think, right? Women stepping into their full power in the world really begins with men stepping into their full power in the home. Two things about that. One, I never asked Ed why he told me this, but he told me that Brody cried with him on the way home from Michael's. Look, my kids cry to me every freaking day, Jill. I would never be announcing that to you. I'm assuming he was saying that because it was a unique experience. And his son was crying because he was sad his grandmother was dying. It must have been a unique experience for Ed to have that type of intimacy with his son. AKA, this is not just saddling extra work on men. These are meaningful caregiving experiences. And two, B, I think it was the fact that he told me that because that point of connection with, with his son is, is a point of pride because lately I've been talking to Ed about his policies. He's a, a COO of a multinational bank. And he said to me, Ed, my glitter guy who started off in 2018 saying that he was a CEO outside the home and his wife was a CEO of the home is now saying things to me like, I'm worried 
about my workforce, that we're going to offer flexibility and only women will take it. And then we're going to have two classes of citizens in our in our bank where men are the ones getting the promotions because they have the FaceTime and women are forgotten about. This is Ed. Wow. This is Ed who, ha- who has thousands of employees starting to think yeah. through these things that I believe started because of the meaningful interactions he had as they started to build his competency in the home through him taking on more and more cards. Of course, I'm not going to take credit for the entire transformation of Ed, but I think that it starts so beautifully with how their interactions change, Jill. And so that that is the political movement of Fair Play. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider making a values-based donation on Patreon. Even a small contribution helps us with some of our expenses. You could think of it as taking a co-host out for a cup of coffee. And you can link to Patreon on our website or just search for us on patreon.com. Okay, so if I'm understanding correctly, it sounds like if you get enough individuals on board, a good number of those individuals are going to be people who are the CEOs of their company, like people who are leaders and in positions of power to make these changes. And instead of just throwing a policy at them that they don't have buy-in to execute, they're getting buy-in by experiencing it firsthand. And then they're going to be more likely to make some of those changes at an organizational level. That's it. I'll take you on the road with me because yeah. I think that 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 is it. That I is love the it. political movement. Yeah, that's it's, that's great. It's lived experience because the yeah. thing that was keeping me up at night was the fact that seventy percent of our one percent uh, of men, the, the men who make our policies for us in government and in corporations, have the most traditional family structure imaginable. They have stay-at-home wives. Mm-hmm. And so that was the Ed Julie dynamic. She was trying to get back in the workforce, but always she would always, she was one of those toxic time messages that my job is more flexible. So she started taking on more things and she called herself what I call myself in fair play, which is the accidental traditionalist where we end up in these traditional roles, but we didn't plan for it. And so for, for, for an Ed who, who still is a primary breadwinner, but to have more lived experience, holding cards, understanding the ownership understanding how important it was to him to have that experience with Brody to say to his team, what are you guys doing for a secret Santa around the holiday? Are your kids doing that at school where people are like, what, how do you even know that it is, it is a change in leadership. And so I do, I do believe it starts with glitter, Jill. I I don't know what else to say. I believe it starts with having your hands in In the the glitter. glitter. Well, Mm -hmm. and I think the other thing that happens when you start with the couple at home is, you know, and we talked about this a little bit last time is, you're modeling to your children. And so you are potentially changing the next generation of boys and girls and teaching them how to break free of traditional gender roles. And I love that, you know, my kids will come to me and say something like, I don't have any clean socks. And I'm like, well, go talk to daddy. He does the laundry, Mm -hmm. right? They know like Mm -hmm. mom doesn't do all the chores anymore. Daddy Mm -hmm. does just Mm -hmm. as many. And we actually had a good question from one of our listeners about how to incorporate teenagers into fair play or, and I guess it doesn't have to just be, well, her question was specifically about teenagers because she has high school kids. Her daughter's a little more helpful than her son. So she even sort of wondered, Ooh, I wonder if that's a modeling issue, Mm -hmm. but like, is there a way that we can use this to get our kids, you know, they're emerging adults to be more responsible. You know, how can we split our chores four ways instead of just trying to figure out how to do it two ways? I love that so much because I'm really thinking about as we build sort of fair play 
out, you know, into having more practitioners understand this behavioral design tool and then use it. I was speaking this morning on a panel with Julie Lithcott-Hames, who is the ex-Stanford dean who wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult. Our episode that released in April, episode number 194, was me interviewing Julie. Amazing. Okay. So I, I, I love your podcast. And so I just am not caught up. So I apologize for not listening to that episode. (laughs) So, so I would almost say that's also a prequel. We should, you should stop now and listen to that as well. But so Julie, as you know, Jill, um, her work is literally a compliment to fair play, or I would say fair play is a compliment to, to Julie's work. And so what Ben, and I think I may have said this to you, I may have said this in 176, our, our episode, our 101. And if not, then I'll say it here. And if I did, then I'm repeating myself. But Ben wanted me, because he knew I was interviewing Julia today, and he uh, knows you know, that conception planning execution is similar to executive function, or it's the same as executive function, uh, spoiler alert, that, that Julie uh, talks about a lot, that we are going to get our kids into Stanford for them, but we they're not going to stay there because they can't even make their health services appointment. They don't know how to log into a portal to sign up for classes. They don't know how to advocate for themselves because parents are calling saying that their kid's grade is, is as Julie says, like a stock market stock, like we're up, we're down, monitoring it like it's another stock market app on their phones. Uh, they're doing it for their kids. So Ben said to me, he's nine. He said to me, well, I want you to tell Julie that I think it's really weird that your friend posted that her daughter was helping her fold the laundry, that she's going to forget that is not her responsibility. Tell Julie that I hold the laundry cart on the weekends for our family. Tell Julie that I know that that means I have to open the secret oil drawer and put in the downy and the tide or whatever we were using. I know that means that I have to decide which setting to put it on, whether it's whites or coloreds, clothes, or or maybe things that need to be sanitized like masks. I know that means I have to fold all the stuff in the dryer before it gets wrinkled, mom. I know that means that I have to scrape out the lint. That's my favorite part, he says, because he feels fluffy to scrape, scrape out the dryer lint. And I know it has to go back into the drawers. That's it. Mm. You teach your kids that, then that's it. It is it is an ownership mindset that you hear. We call it CPE and fair play. Julie calls it executive function, being a, me- a core true member of the household. So it seems like similar to what we've talked about before, it probably starts with a conversation, maybe even a vulnerable conversation about how it feels to be the one person in a family of four who has most of the responsibilities put upon them you know, and, and where, what the story is behind that. And then what you could even like physically deal the cards out with the, you know, with kids who are old enough. I mean, I think I could even do that with my kids who are seven and nine. Oh, well, Ben Ben is nine. Ben is nine. nine. And he is is a, he is, he holds the laundry card for the weekends because we do have a housekeeper and she's amazing. Adriana and we pay her well. And she, she is a very important part of our family structure. And I think it's very important to recognize the the team that goes into being part of your household. If you have outside domestic workers, we have to, of course, pay them well, recognize how important and valued their labor is. And my kids see that and recognize Adriana's labor. 
and she comes twice a week. And so the laundry obviously piles up over the weekend and that's Ben's responsibility. And it didn't start that way. It is, it's obviously been a process. It's been a two-year process. I think we started the idea of thinking about Ben as laundry doer at seven. And now they're finally ready to redeal. Zach, my older son, who's dishes is like, I think maybe Ben has a better thing, but as like dishes is gross, Zach, you know, like, so maybe you do want to switch and let Ben take it over for a little while. Nobody should have dishes forever on weekends, but so that those conversations were ones that have happened over time. They're never perfect. They require the same vigilance that Seth and I have, which is that we check in with our kids. We do a Friday Shabbat check-in before we sit down. We do a Shabbat ritual where we light the candles and we have challah. It's mainly just to eat lots of good, you know, brioche <laughs> bread. bread. <laughs> but, but we do check in then and we say, let's just see what's happening on the weekend. Who's in charge of what? And so the other thing that's been very helpful is that Zach and Ben are parents helpers. I don't call it mother's helpers because we have to get out of these gendered terms, but Zach and Ben are primarily responsible for Anna on the weekends Mm. because we really don't like watching a toddler. And so that watching (laughs) card has been really helpful. So they have to think about what they plan out for her, what they're going to feed her for lunch. If she poops how to help wipe her, understand that women, a a girl's vagina is different than boys. She has to be wiped front to back. We don't want poop getting into her vagina. She can get a urinary tract infection. Those are all conversations we we are ritualizing and normalizing in our house. Well, I think too, like giving them their own responsibility, like the card, the CPE. I wonder if that's even a little bit more motivating for them to do it. Cause like I'm thinking about in my house, how I have to remind my kids every single meal to clear their dang plates. But I wonder if they would be more likely to do it. If it was like, this is your responsibility from beginning to end. I'm going to try it. That's going to be my next challenge yes, to yes, see if I, I can yes, do it with my kids. I love it. I love okay. it. It's challenging. And I will say this is the way, the way to do it that I've seen most successful for people who do involve their kids is to begin with it as a curiosity mm-hmm. exercise. And so what I mean by that is it's actually really fun for kids to hold the cards, but it's so fun because what naturally would happen in the beginning when we start to develop them was my kids would be like, oh, laundry. That that's mom. That's mom. Birth <laughs> birth control. Mom, what is that? What does that mean? I'm like, well, that's a condom. Let's talk about that later. Uh, groom, grooming and wardrobe. What does that mean, mom? Well, it means that before fair play, this is really gross. But daddy used to ask me like why he doesn't have any clean underwear. Like why didn't order him underwear? He's now in charge of his own clothes. How cool is that? And so now I ask people yeah. instead of saying who does what, I ask them instead to say, what do you think we value as a household? So it's really fun to use the cards that way first Mm -hmm. is to say, so I would ask you, Jill, so instead of using them as a, um, like, let's get you involved. I'd love for you to sit down one night and say, we're going to play a game. Let's see what we value together as a household. Do we value marriage and romance? Well, daddy and I use, that's why we do our date nights. I know you hate when we go out, Mm -hmm. but we really value our relationship guys. What about dishes? Do we value that? Well, I guess they have to be done. Okay, so we we value that because they they need to be done. We we value a clean sink. And so that's what I would ask, Jill, is that it would be fun even before you ask for to them to get involved. I'd love to come yeah. back on in part three or even talk off offline 
about the exercise of, because that's been the most helpful now I'm seeing is more recently people have been shifting the conversation from mommy and daddy do this. The more valuable exercise is when a family sits down together and says, let's just go out for ice cream and let's just build our deck together to see what we value as a family. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even just seeing how many things there are, you know, it maybe makes kids have a little less entitlement Entitlement. and a little more compassion of like, wow, it really, there really are a lot of responsibilities and maybe mommy and or daddy shouldn't be the ones to have to do all these things. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's wishful thinking, but it seems like, I think it is. I will say that, that, that is a, I think that's a deeper understanding that Zach as a 12 year old, because what we started to start handing over to him, Jill recently, which and I'll that will have to come back and tell you how that goes. Cause it's too new for me to tell you. I could just tell you the questions he's asking me though. We just started handing over medical and healthy living. There's a card mm-hmm. called medical and healthy living. And we said, we think you should be responsible for this card for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so what Zach is now saying, cause we are getting a phone and you'll have the contacts in your phone. Well, Zach is starting to ask questions like, well, what does that mean? And I'm saying, well, it means you have to know the name of your pediatrician. It means you have to know that you get an annual physical. It means we have to tell you what shots you've had and what boosters you get as you grow to be 18. It means you need to know where your immunization records are. It means we have to know whether or not we're going to add orthodontics to your dental appointments. You have to know the name of your dentist. How often do you get cleanings? When you can go scheduling your own appointments. And he's like, well, that's a lot of things to think about. And I said, well, the beauty of you thinking about those things, it means that daddy and I don't have to think about those things now. Mm-hmm. And it frees our brain up because your brain now has those things to think about. And it's going to make you a better student. Because I promise mm-hmm. you, Dean Hames from Stanford will tell you that the beauty of you owning things like your own medical records, like the dishes, is that type of accomplishment then ends up translating to you as a student, as an individual, yeah. as a worker. I was going to say, when you were explaining this, I was thinking, man, Julie must give you an A plus. (laughs) (laughs) This is some great A, like helping a kid already moving toward adulting. I love it. Well, well, please God, I will see, but I do, I do see, see, I will see, say that I think the one thing about adding this practice into our home has done has been that our kids at least are more aware of the dynamics um, that are going around along around them. They are more aware of their privilege. Yeah. They're more, my son, Ben, my nine-year-old, the same one who had his, his uh, realization about laundry. He's somebody who screamed, you know, to me about uh, Cinderella when he was watching it with Anna saying, Oh, that, the feminist emergency. Remember, the feminist yeah. emergency. Yeah. Yes. So that my, might have been my favorite emergency. part of the interview last exactly. time. Yeah. So, so you remember the feminist emergency <laughs> He is, um, he did it again recently, actually. He did it again with, with race this time. He, we had another, um, this was not a feminist emergency, but this was regarding that we were watching the movie Sing Again, which he, I talk about in the book, he had already, he had recognized there was a character named Rosita in the movie Sing who found her unicorn space again. She's a pig who has been, it was ignoring her. And then she learns to sing and she goes on stage and then he kisses her at the end and her kids start valuing her again because she, she comes back into herself. So, but, but he actually was asking me about why it is that all the voices in sing were white voices. Oh, interesting. 
that all the characters, wow. even though they're animated voices, he's like, I right. think they're all white characters. Huh. And then he also asked Good me, why is it, why is it that the criminal, the the only character that's a criminal is a, also a gorilla, which is the only, you know, design character that is presents black on, on the screen. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a very interesting conversation we had about just being more aware, aware yeah. of what's happening and how we can design our media and design our homes. And right. that the fact that it doesn't have to be this way. It's not inevitable that everything was designed this way. It's fucking inevitable. Right. So <laughs> last time it was the gender emergency. This episode is called the, it's fucking inevitable. I love it. Okay. So another question from a listener was, do you have any tips for how a third party might get someone else involved? So for example, this person specifically said, my mom needs to have this exact conversation with my stepdad. How can I, as an outside third party, broach the topic with them? And let me add to that. Cause one of the things I've seen is I have some friends who will kind of get on board. Like maybe they listened to episode 176 and they kind of want to go for it. And then it, it's sort of like kind of like excuses or reasons like that it's not going to work and it couldn't possibly happen in our household. And so we just go back to the old way where it's not fair. Right. That's Julie. That was the Julie when I, she said, I'm Ed's going to do homework. And then she's like, well, actually he's not going to get in on time and he's too busy. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, it was, yeah. it is so common. I love the third party. I'd say the first thing of course is, you know, carry a big stick, you know, speak softly. So of course the modeling is it's triggering sometimes because, you know, when you have more fairness in your home and you don't want to get into those annoying conversations with people about how much they hate their partner, it does feel like people may judge you as self-righteous. It's okay. I will give you permission to be self-righteous and to be a culture war to say, yes, I have a great marriage right now, or my marriage is working out really well for me. And no, I don't have those issues. I'm not being expected to Uh, be put the buck under the pillow. We actually talk about it, right? So sometimes I think people who aren't there yet, it is threatening when you are further along in that journey because you start to see yourself happier in your relationship and more light or more time to do more podcasts. And there maybe someone will be jealous. Like how did Jill get to do 200 episodes? Like I can't even do one because I can't, you know, you know, so so I'd say we have to own our power to say we deserve to yeah. our time being diamonds and we should not feel bad or sad or, or guilty to other people. If they haven't gotten there, we should celebrate it. We have closer to equal partnerships. That's a great thing. And so I'd say the modeling is really important. The other thing I'd say is for someone who sees someone else struggling with this, it is really hard because a lot of people don't want to take other people's advice. And what I would just say in those situations is that just give that person grace to listen don't, you don't always have to jump in with advice at that, at that phase. But I do think Mm -hmm. the idea of saying it's really hard, things feel really unfair. It doesn't have to be this way. It's not a you problem. This is a societal problem. Other people are struggling with this. I think to me, that's, that's the type of compassion that we want to come to the table with, because if we come with saying, well, I have a solution for you, or it doesn't have to be this way and you're failing, it can end up landing wrong. So often what I do in those situations and what I see other people successfully doing are just saying things like, did you know this is not a you problem? This is actually a societal problem. And here's the beauty of it. Here's like three articles from the New York Times that show that other people are 
are struggling with this too. And actually recently there was an article, Fair Play was featured in it. It just came out this week, but it was a researcher uh, in the New York Times Parenting. I saw that. It's actually yeah. said, why are women the ones who have to worry? Why aren't men worrying too? Yeah. And so you could just send an article and just say like, it's not your problem. It's really a societal yeah. problem. And sometimes just that, like when I learned that the second shift invisible work, the mental load was a thing and other other women especially were struggling with it. It was a time in my life where I finally felt like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not failing. Maybe this is something bigger than me. Yeah. And I would add to that, read the book. Because I think what happens is people get a vague understanding of what this is and they're into it. But I think there are some really important specific elements here, which are like the scripts for how to broach the subject with your partner who might not be on board right away, plus CPE, plus the minimum standard of care. You know, it really lays the groundwork for understanding what the problems are and why it's important and why you're entitled for your time to be as important as your partner's time. And, you know, do you know if your book's on audio? Is there an audio? Yes, there is an audio book. I think audio is a good way to listen to it in chunks. You can listen to the car with your kids, because this is a, it's a very similar yeah. to how, how to raise an adult where it's not like we're going to do harm to your kids by listening to this. This is just another way to say, this is how you are an adult in society, basically. And it's not gendered. And if you practice fair play, you will actually recapture so much free time that you'll have time to sit down and read books because, right. you know, that's <laughs> the other thing. Well, here's like, I don't have time to read a whole book, which is why I asked about audio, but Truly, I have so much free time now because I'm not doing the CPE of 89% of all of the household and work Mm -hmm. and everything else. Okay. Okay. So another question is, what happens when both partner schedules are constantly changing and it feels like there's a need to do a lot on the fly because every day is different? So like, I might be able to do pickups and drop-offs today, but you're going to have to do it next Thursday. This Thursday is different from next Thursday, that kind of thing. That That is when fair play works the best. Our couples with the most dynamic schedules are the ones who say that the system helped them the most. And those couples do a 10-minute and night check-in. So in fair play, I recommend, I recommend a once-a-week check-in. The couples who are in those dynamic schedules, they report that it's a 10-minute and night check-in. Seth and I are 100% in that category, where if we don't check in every night, we literally have no idea where our children are, and often they're being... <laughs> left somewhere by mistake. So, and that has happened to us many times where we will get a call from somebody saying, is your child supposed to, you know, be picked up? And we're like, oh shit. You know, we're like, we should, we should have checked in last night. When you have dynamic schedules, customizing your defaults in advance is the most important thing I can tell you that can change your life. Knowing who's in charge of pickups Tuesdays and Thursdays, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, dinner in advance, that is, it's game changing because you can prep in advance. Yeah. You can save time. You can be in charge. That is when setting the table when you're hangry and cranky or when the dog is taking a piss on your rug because you forgot to decide who's taking it out. That is the chaos and the decision fatigue that grows when you have dynamic scheduling. So all I can say is that that is a place where I will recommend read read the actual, read the book uh-huh. because- it, it works. It works for dynamic well, schedules. I agree. My husband's schedule is pretty consistent, but mine changes a lot. And I find that 
because I know that I'm in charge of pickups and drop-offs, I plan my schedule accordingly. Like Mm -hmm. instead of my schedule being in charge of me, I've become more in charge of my schedule because I know exactly when I'm in charge of dinner, I'm in charge of pickups. So I schedule around it. Now, maybe I'm sure for some people that may not be possible, but I think there's the possibility of, of quieting the chaos a little bit if you actually practice this in this way, if you take on the responsibility of this task so that you can't have things that are all over the place. Like you have to be home for the four o'clock pickup or whatever it is. I mean, at the end of the day, we are all living in a home, whether it's with a roommate. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, there are people who are unhoused, right? But we have the, the people who are listening often. We have privilege that we live in a home. And the truth is, is that it has to become our most important organization. Yeah. Whatever your look, where whatever it looks like, there is a way to dial down the chaos. Um, systems do that. That's why there's HR teams and corporations. That's why people have policies. That's why we have laws. Because ultimately, these are ways to design behaviors to make them expected so that we are not making decision fatigue problems. Do you, can you yeah. imagine if we did not know if cars would stop at a stop sign? We would all have to make the decision every single time to assess a car. Does that car look like I can wave it down? Does that car look like it'll stop for me? It would be complete and total and utter chaos. So whether it's the law, whether it's designing a behavioral design for your home, getting a system in place is life-changing. It is Mm -hmm. life-changing. Jill and I are here to attest to it. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It does not mean it's perfect. It does not mean that when something, a glitch in the matrix happens, that the school is still not calling me, that I'm still pissed that they're not calling Seth, that I take it out on him. It doesn't mean that things are perfect, but it does mean that at the end of the day, the expectation is that we are going to decide together who is handling this as opposed to pre-fair play where the expectation was Eve, Eve is the one who handles everything. And just that default and expectation means that you get to come to the table with such a more open mind over how you're going to structure your dynamic schedules. Yeah. Well, here's a really good one that I'm sure comes up a lot, especially these days during the pandemic and whatnot, which is what happens when you have two partners that are basically comparing their level of burnout? Like one person is saying, I'm more burnt out than you. And I need you to carry some of my cards. Like I cannot carry all these cards. You have to take them over. And the other partner says, I am just as burnt out, if not more burnt out than you. So you need to take some of my cards. You know, how do you negotiate that when like both parents are just burning the candle at both ends and are like at the end of it, you know, like are burnt out basically? Well, in that case, what I would say is that that's because we hate caregivers in America. And so I want to say that the only, you know, the, the place that in, in a global survey, a sociologist did a huge survey. We rank last in parental satisfaction. So that is a problem that is a societal problem. That's why, as we said, fair play is a political movement. We have literally no social safety nets. We have no access to pay leave. We have no access to free or even affordable child care. It is a complete and total nightmare, literally a nightmare, yeah. nightmare for parents in America. And so what I want to say is I just want to honor that and say that, yes, that burnout is real. And sometimes it is really hard to say to your partner, you do more because they are at the end of their rope. And so what I will say is that it is a moral failing. So that that's just a moral failure of America. But what we can do together as a, as a team is what we've done in the pandemic, which I hope we will continue to do, which is saying, 
we have to look at these cards together and we have to burn, burn them. Mm. We cannot play with a full deck of cards. And that is, is something that is hard to do. We're, con- we're conditioned to want to be intensive parents. It's what we've learned. But you know what? Maybe, maybe you don't have it me- any memories and photos for this year. Maybe yeah. that's it. You know, no one's taking any pictures this year. Maybe you're not going to put them in an album this year. Maybe we skipped our holiday cards, no holiday cards, right? That maybe, maybe you never send another thank you note. Mm -hmm. And you just say, look, I'm so grateful for you, but we are so burnt out. We live in America. We can't, we can't do this. Maybe we take travel off of our list this year. We stopped going to birthday parties because I just don't want to buy gifts anymore. Yeah. And I I think that's such great advice. And I will throw in one caveat, which is I just had this flashback to before Billy and I were doing this well, way back when, when I was like totally burnt out, juggling all the things, like really having a hard time. And his solution was, well, why don't you just do less? And it was like the things in my career that are really important to me. And I'm like, why should I have to do less? Why don't you Mm -hmm. do more? So I want to throw a caveat in there that what we're talking about is like, both partners coming together and saying like, what do home. we agree right. in the Housework home? Yeah. and childcare. We are not right. talking about right. anything outside the home because what, what yes. we're saying here is the Billy phenomenon. And again, we love Billy now, but the, <laughs> it was a, it was a phenomenon. I talk about as a toxic time message in fair play that so many hetero cisgender men's were, men were saying to their, their partners. Well, if you're so overwhelmed, just get help. If you're so overwhelmed, Stop doing all these unnecessary things. Oh my God, that's my trigger. I wanted to literally harm Seth when he said that. Because to me, what do you what the fuck is unnecessary? Our kids need to go to the dentist. Our kids do need to learn to ride a bike. Our kids do need to see their friends sometime. But what we were actually talking at loggers with was the fact as we began this conversation that Seth was not feeling invited to the party. And so again, why fair play is a system, it's not a list, is because the buy-in, that that value-setting exercise to what we value as a family is incredibly important to move on to the next step. Because then you will never hear my wife, my partner does all these unnecessary things because you've already both bought in to the things that you're doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very last question. This is so relatable for once you've like established your roles, you're doing fair play. How do you maintain your own boundary where you're not just jumping in and taking over? Or my friend, Susie, who we talked about in the last episode too, she gave an example of the kids were putting their laundry away and she like, couldn't stop herself from saying to her husband, make sure you supervise. Otherwise it's going to be messy or something like that. And he was just kind of like, we don't need a coach or something like that. Like we're good. <laughs> coach, right? You can go. And she felt so bad about it. She, you know, it was like, I couldn't stop myself from saying it. it's like you with the trash, right? Like when the trash is driving you crazy, how do you not say, are you going to get that trash out tonight? You said you do it every day and it's already seven o'clock. Are you going to do it? when that's like such a habit that we've been such a habit. It is such a habit. Oh my God, Jill. It is the thing that is the most toxic. It is the thing that was coming up over and over again for why people didn't want to listen to each other because in some way they were getting feedback in the moment. Feedback in the moment is not hearable. We cannot hear you when emotion is high and your cognition is low. And so I desperately want to say to Seth, you said you were going to take out the garbage. Like I knew you would fail me right in the moment. 
the key premise of communication and fair play is the check-in because Mm -hmm. it allows you to write it down. I'm not saying your concern is not valid, but what I'm saying is that you invite someone to the party so that they know and expect that that party is about talking about what you're talking about. When you say you didn't get them onto the zoom, you know, when, when you're using a toxic tone or when you say things like, as my friend Claudia calls herself the verbal assassin, she's different than me. I use terrible tone. She says things like, oh yeah, you know, I just, I'm just surprised that you didn't know you were going to become the worst father that ever existed. Like that was something that I'm surprised you didn't know was going to happen to you, but it did. You're the worst father that ever existed, right? <laughs> verbal assassins, right? In the moment. Yeah. So it's predicated on this idea that communication is a means to an end is often toxic if it's given in the moment. And that communication as a practice is the, the most beautiful way you can look at communication because so many people are investing in their exercise practice and their meditation mm-hmm. practice, but they're not looking at their communication with their partner as a practice. Invest in it. So many women said to me, well, I don't have time for a 10 minute check-in. And this is before the pandemic where I would take their screen time. The best thing that ever happened to me was getting that screen time thing on iPhones because then I could go in and say, well, apparently you do because <laughs> three hours and 42 minutes on Instagram. How about you spend three hours and 32 minutes on Instagram and give 10 minutes a night to that check-in. That's fair. And so that's a way that you can do that because for me, it was, I'm still wanting to give the feedback in the moment. And so oftentimes you'll see that I'll have black pen on my hand that says things like yellow rag. And then I'll look later at the night when our check-in, I'm like, well, apparently I'm really angry at you about a yellow rag, but I have no idea what. Now I don't remember. Right. Well, I think the other thing maybe the check-in might be doing is it forces you to be more aware and awareness is really that first step to getting off autopilot. Right. And so if you're aware of like who's doing what and how it's going and whether you're playing your part, then you're increasing your awareness of those moments during the day where you said, make sure you supervise so the kids do it neatly. And that that may be a path toward less of that habitual, just blurting the things out because that's what you always do. Absolutely. And the other thing I will say, women said to me when I asked them about the transactional nature of their communication, well, I had to tell them to get them on Zoom. It was the fact that I was hearing underneath that because as a mediator, and again, as a psychotherapist, you probably feel the same way, right? The presenting problem is never the real problem. Mm -hmm. But what I was hearing was a deep lack of thinking that their partner would come back to the table. Mm -hmm. If I didn't get it out, then they wouldn't be in my face and I couldn't, they wouldn't come back to me. They wouldn't come back to the table. So I think so many of us are worried that if we don't say it in the moment, that there'll be never another opportunity that will be able to say that thing. And so again, that's another thing to check and alleviates. If you know that there will be an opportunity that your partner is willing to hear you, then often I do feel that it's hand in hand with feeling less stress at having to articulate something in the moment. And until this day, to this day, right, 10 years into that, it's still a hard thing for me to, to remember. I have to exercise it. It's a practice for me. But when I do it now, when I do the feedback in the moment and it, and it, it always ends up terrible, yeah. all it does is I say, great. I look at it and I don't get mad at myself and feel shame for doing it. I say, it's just another data point to show me how important Absolutely. what I'm saying is. Well, we're, we're way past the end of our time. Yeah. <laughs> I love talking to you, but before we say goodbye, I want you to tell our listeners, we have, you know, that we have listeners who are 
people in the public, but we have lots of listeners who are also um, therapists, mental health professionals, and you have a new initiative that you're building right now that's going to be a train the trainer. So is there a way that people can find out about that if they want to learn fair play and then teach either their clients or teach other professionals how to teach people? Where can they learn about that? Well, thank you. Yes, we're working right now. It'll be like that type of program where the behavioral design aspect is going to be hopefully delivered in a way that is a 201, a 301, a 401, that a way we would deliver it to the actual person who's having the hard time, but to the professional who is already used to unpacking conditioning. And so we just look at it as another tool in the arsenal. But we also, of course, given that we started off today thinking about fair play as a political movement, we do believe that colleagues in the psychotherapy space, people who work directly with individuals and couples are a key to unlocking this cultural change. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I would recommend that people sign up for your newsletter. It's got great content and I imagine we'll get all the, all the info as it comes. Yeah. We're, we're, we're just, we're building it again, alongside psychologists. We're doing this very thoughtfully to make sure of course, that, that it's a do no harm. Of course, that there's an understanding that mediation and law and behavioral design and psychotherapy are not the same thing and to make sure that it is an additive. And so we're doing it very thoughtfully, but stay tuned because I'm really, I think it'll be a really exciting next step for this, for the movement. Wonderful. So go to everadsky.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there and find all of her social media handles. Thank you so much for being here. This was a super valuable conversation and I'm glad that we got a lot of really rich questions answered. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Your time is diamonds. And so, and again, Jill, thank you for all of your vulnerability and for everything you're doing. And I cannot wait. You have to email me, please. And you have to as a terrible communications strategy, (laughs) by the way. So I would never recommend saying that to your partner, but I'll say to Jill, you have to email me. I really am excited to do, for you to do a values exercise with your family to see what you what they value in the deck. And I'd love to hear what your kids say about that. I will let you know for sure. All right. Thanks. Uh, big hug. Big- Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.